As we continue our study on the theme, Common Sense Living, a Proverbs-driven life. question is, are we living a Proverbs-driven life based on what the Proverbs have been teaching us thus far? Are we? Trying. Trying. We are work in progress. Work in progress. Okay. All right. We're getting, uh, we're getting close to the finish line here. Okay. But the challenge is uh, that we are to live a life that is driven. People live their lives driven by a whole lot of other stuff. But God wants us to live our lives driven by the wisdom of the Proverbs uh, that he teaches us. So we're going to pick up at verse... 26. Many seek the ruler's favor, but every man's judgment cometh from the Lord. Amen. A lot of people put a lot of confidence in earthly rulers. And when we look at the state that the world is in today, we see how big a mistake that is, right? People are trusting men and men are failing them, left, right, and center. And so the Proverbs reminds us that Earthly rulers are regarded by many as if they are the solution to all of the problems that we face in life. Obama right now is dumbfounded in terms of what to do. Okay? He's dumbfounded. Okay? And we've got leaders in our country who are also dumbfounded as, 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 as opposed to what they're supposed to do. But uh, the Bible reminds us that justice only comes from the Lord. A lot of people put a lot of confidence in the justice of men. It doesn't work. We see that the failure of men's justice every single day. Okay? Uh, and that's why I'm all often reminded of what uh, Brother David always says. Sort a matter out before I get to court. Yeah. Because you're not always going to get justice in court. You know, everybody thinks that, you know, someone do them something wrong, I'm going to take you to court. Because they think you're going to get justice in court. You're not always going to get justice in court. And as we read through the Proverbs, we've seen over and over where the Bible tells us that there is wickedness in the justice system. So you can't count on it. Satan has contaminated the world. Every facet of the world has been contaminated with wickedness. So you really need to put all your trust and confidence in the Lord. Verse 27. The just man is an abomination to the just, and he that is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. Now notice he's talking about a couple of types of people. He's talking about unjust people, righteous people, wicked people, godly people. Four different types of people are mentioned here. Notice he says, Okay, righteous people despise the people who are not righteous or the unjust. In other words, righteous people don't like people who are not righteous. Put it simply. Okay, and what does the other one say? Okay, wicked people, wicked people despise godly people. Okay, so don't feel bad or singled out. When someone treats you wickedly, that's normal. That's normal. Just you showing up in their presence exposes their wickedness. And that's why they hate you. Anytime a person is exposed for what they do, they hate whatever exposes them. 
Okay, and that's why wicked hate the godly because wherever godly people go, if they are living godly lives, they will automatically show up the wicked. They don't actually have to actually say anything. Just their very presence will make the wicked feel uncomfortable because they know what they're doing. Alright, and they hate the ungodly. So the unjust and the righteous have no relationship. Okay? They have no relationship. In other words, they don't talk, they don't speak to one another. Okay? They're not on good terms. Righteous, the righteous looks at the unjust with disapproval, and the wicked hates the ungodly. The difference between the clean life and the wicked life is just as obvious as, as the way that a straight stick shows up a crooked one. Okay, that's how obvious the believer is when he goes into the presence of the wicked. They show them up. And so don't feel bad when wicked people do hateful things to you, or say hateful things to you, or treat you in hateful ways because you show them up for what they really are. And they don't like that. They do not like that. Now this proverb, uh, verse 27 of chapter 29, ends the Proverbs of Solomon. Up to this point, all of the Proverbs that we have seen, from chapter 1 straight up to 29 uh, and chapter 27, are with the Proverbs of Solomon. All of them, including the ones that were mentioned by others that we, we saw earlier. And so another person now steps in with some words of wisdom. Verse, chapter 30, verse 1. The sayings of Agar, son of Jacob, contain this message. I am weary, O God. I am weary and worn out, O God. Now, the, the source of these sayings are uncertain. Other than all we know is they are from the son, Agar, the son of Jacob. And uh, he was a, a wise teacher. And because he was a wise teacher, his sayings or his teachings qualify to be included in the Proverbs right alongside the words of the most wisest man who ever lived, Solomon. Okay, so to be in a company of Solomon tells us in itself that he was a wise man. Okay, the second line addresses the, the ridiculousness of the insignificant trying to understand the infinite. How ridiculous it is for someone so insignificant as finite little beings like us to understand the infinite is what he's saying. And you'll notice he'll be talking along those lines a lot. Verse, verse two. I am too stupid. I am too stupid to be human, and I lack common sense. Okay. <laughs> what is he doing here? What is he doing? Huh? He's confessing his failure. Confession is good for the soul, isn't it? That's what I say. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. He's he's confessing his own failure to get common sense. We are, we are, what do they say? Common sense ain't common? That's right. Okay, and a lot of people think it is. But he's confessing his own failure to get common sense based on his own human abilities. He's confessing, he said, there's nothing in me, there's nothing about me that would, would seek common sense. It is, in fact, a declaration of genuine humility. That's what we see here. 
genuine humility. Whenever someone confesses their failure in anything, it's, it's a sign of genuine humility. The right attitude for anyone who has questions about God's ways and how he works. That's the kind of attitude that one has to have. Verse 3. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Okay, so he admits to not mastering human wisdom. He says, I'm no master. I have not mastered human wisdom or coming to know God by human effort. Because he knows that he does not possess the power in and of himself to get the knowledge of the Holy One. He knows that, you know, in order to understand or in order to get wisdom, in order to get the knowledge of the Holy One, I need God's help to do that. God has to reveal himself to me. God has to show me his wisdom. There's nothing I could do. You know, some people think that, boy, I'm so smart, I can do this and I can do that. And they attribute all that they acquire in terms of knowledge and wisdom based on their ability to get it, to acquire it. What are you saying is the opposite? Say, I can't do nothing. There's nothing in me. God has to do it all. God has to expose this to me. God has to show this to me. God has to reveal this to me. If it ain't for God, the knowledge of the Holy One, I'm nothing. I'm toast. Verse 4. Who but God goes up to heaven and comes back down? Who holds the wind in his fist? Who wraps up the ocean in his cloak? Who has created the whole wide world? What is his name and his son's name? Tell me if you know. Okay. Here we see five questions. He asked five questions. With these five questions, the greatness of God, as he is revealed in nature, is brought into perspective. The God of nature. Notice what he asks, the first one. The first question deals with God's access to the heights and depths of the universe, where no one can follow him. That's what he's described here in his first phrase. Okay? God's access to the heights and depths of the universe. You know, men are trying to explore space. You know, they talk about going to Mars. And every so often, they discover that there are parts of the universe that they didn't even know existed. That's how vast the universe is. And so that's an implication of what the psalmist is talking about, what, what uh, Agar is talking about here. Uh, when he talks about the access to the heights and depths of the universe where no one can follow him, uh, that's what he's describing here. The things that man, man is discovering. When the Hubble Space Telescope went up, they never imagined they would see some of the sights that they, they now see today. They never imagined that they would discover some of the things that, they have, that they're discovering now. And this is what he's uh, uh, attesting to. Secondly, he talks about God's control over the immense power of the wind. Can you hold the wind? No. Can you grab the wind and hold it in your hand? No. He's talking about God's ability to do that. Only God could do that. Okay, and so God's control over the immense power of the wind is pointed out as a second thing. And then thirdly, he talks about God's power to restrain the waters. Now whether these waters in the clouds above the earth or in the oceans below, God has the ability to restrain them. Okay, God has the ability to control them. Uh, so when we see floods and hurricanes and, and it rains like it never wants to stop, God's controlling all of that. 
None of that stuff is out of control. Some scientists chalk it up to global warming. But listen, God is in, in control of His creation. Okay, they can blame as much as they want on what people have done to bring about global warming. But listen, God is in control. And this verse attests to that. God has the power to restrain the waters. So whenever something happens, God allows it to happen the way it happened. You know, we look at, oh, it's a catastrophe. You know, they, they, people are so much in tune now with what God has said. And they believe God even though they don't admit they believe Him. That whenever big things happen, they talk about floods of... What? Tsunamis. Huh? Tsunamis. They, they, they talk about these, these catastrophes, these, these uh, global phenomena in, in terms of flood proportions. Flood. Now, they don't believe in God. They don't believe in the flood. Why are they using the terms in the Bible? Okay, they talk about it flood proportions when they talk about these things. But it speaks about the power of God to control. He allows the waters to go where they go. He allows it to rain as much as it rains. Nothing to do with global warming. Or us using so much aerosols that it destroyed the, the, uh, the uh, what do what they call the thing in the sky? In the heavens? The ozone layer? Okay. I saw a cartoon last week. I showed a picture of Alan Watts standing up in the middle of Antarctica, all the ice running. He had a blow dryer in his hand. He said, global warming has started. <laughs> They're a bunch of nitwits. <laughs> And they actually believe that stuff. They actually believe that. But God has the power to restrain the waters and to put them back. You know, some of the, uh, uh, the last bit of rain we had, uh, the yard at Kingsway was so flooded. Muriel, Muriel had a picture on Facebook of all the water that went into the office. And that never happened before. It was on the office. You know, it went right into the office and they had to take up all the carpets and all that stuff and the sidewalks in the in the elementary in the in the elementary section, the water was above the sidewalk. And they got some high sidewalks. Yeah. The water was above the sidewalks and almost about to go into into the classrooms. Okay? It was it was They'd never seen that kind of flooding before. Okay? I said, boy, you know, um, this island must be sinking. It seemed to be getting worse and worse. Yeah. But God is still in control. Yes. No matter how bad it gets, the consolation for us is that, you know, God's still in charge. He's in control. He restrains the waters. He makes it rain as much as He wants it to rain. Uh, when, he, when he think it's raining much, he tells the rain stop. Okay, that's enough. Okay, and so that's what he's saying here. God is in control. God is sovereign. He's in, he's in charge. He's in control. And then fourthly, he talks about God's establishment of the boundaries of the land masses. Okay, the land masses that are established, God determines those boundaries. Now, Nygaard could do a lot of trickery and stuff and, and, and expand that land. Uh, as much as he can, or what they call it, teeth as much land as he can. From, you, you know what he does, right? He he uh, he makes these contraptions of these uh, wire, sort of like wire mesh. Now he only bought a certain size piece of land, okay? But he makes these wire mesh thing and he puts it around the property. And when the sound washes up, it gets trapped in this wire mesh. And gradually over time, the land that he owns expands and gets bigger and bigger and bigger, okay? 
And that's what he's and that's what you hear all this this uh, ruckus about Nygaard stealing teeth in Bahamian and land and all that stuff. That's what the, the whole deal is. And he's been doing that for years. And the land that he's he has now is much bigger than the land that he bought from the government. So they're saying, well, you need to pay taxes on that. Because what he's, what he's paying taxes for is not what he has now, it's what he bought before. But God is telling us here that God is the one who establishes the boundaries. So sooner or later, Nygaard is going to get a rude awakening. We don't know what that's going to be. We don't imagine what it's going to be, but he's going to rule him because the Bible says here, God is the one who established boundaries and land masses. Only him. And of course, you've heard about the, the, uh, uh, the people, the, the Arabs, who created all that artificial, those artificial islands, uh, man-made islands so that they made. Uh, but the Bible tells us God establishes the stuff. And whenever we do stuff like that and we interfere, you know, it's not good. It's not good. And then fifth he says, who can fully know how such an incomprehensible, mysterious, powerful, omniscient being, notice all these attributes of God, who can fully know him? Can you fully know God? You know, sometimes we can know a person so well that we can almost anticipate what they're going to say or what they're going to do. Can we do that of God? God still remains a mystery. God shares some of his attributes with us, but some he retains. The answer, of course, is no. No one can know such an incomprehensible, mysterious, powerful, and omniscient being. No one can ever understand him fully. You know, when we think we, we, we get a little bit of understanding, God through, throws a loop. I mean, the dark again. But we do know that his name is Jehovah. We know that, right? Yeah. And we know that his son's name is what? Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. And that's all we need to know. To have the assurance that we need to have whenever we face whatever we face. That's all we need to know. Who God, his name, who he is, and what his son's name is. And we can call upon his son. He says, if you ask, any, ask me of anything in my son's name, I will do it. So you see how important those names are. Well, important it is for us to know who we're praying to. There are people who worship false gods and they don't even know their names. Remember in the book of Acts, chapter 17? You know, those people worshiping a God, they had so many different gods. They felt that they may be offending one who they didn't know the name of. And so they called one the unknown God. And that was a good opportunity for Paul to step in and say, you know what? This unknown, you're right. There is a God you don't know. But I'm here to tell you what his name is. He is Jehovah God. Yes. And it's good that you recognize that there's a God you don't know because there's an opportunity now that I'm giving you to meet him. Okay? And so there are a lot of people like that who give these gods that they serve names because everyone whose God has created is aware that there is a superior being. Even the atheist in the back of his mind knows that there's a superior being. He don't want to acknowledge him that that superior being is God. He, he's breathing God's breath every single day he wakes up, but he doesn't want to acknowledge God. But in the back of his mind, there's an indication that there's a God out there. And then verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He is the children of God who trust in the name of God. So now Agar shifts his focus. He shifts his focus from 
God's revelation in nature to his revelation in the word by stating the infallibility of the Holy Scriptures. Again, there are those who say, oh, the Scriptures, I met this Cuban fellow one time, and um, he says, the Bible is full of lies, full of lies. So he said, boy, and he was angry. So he says, why do why you, why you, why you think the Bible is full of lies? Because God wouldn't get rid of Castro. Boy, he was really upset with Castro. And so he blamed God. He says, God is not, he's not the God he's supposed to be, and the Bible is full of lies, because God hasn't done anything with Castro, and all Castro has been doing is, is oppressing his people. And he said he went to the United States, he went to the United States in a boat, like all of them do, most of them, and left his wife and his family at home because he was planning on going back on a boat, but he was angry because his wife and family wasn't with him. And he was angry. But he, uh, he says the word, the Bible is full of lies and contradictions. So Agar now shifts to the infallibility of God's word. That every word of God is pure, undefiled. He talks about the security of those who trust in the God of the Bible. And what does he say about them? He says, for those people who trust in the God of the Bible, he is a shield. Now what does a shield do? Yes. It protects, right? And so God is the protector, but notice for who? Oh, for everybody? Right. Only those who put their trust in Him. You got to trust Him to be able to benefit from His protection. Plain and simple. You don't trust Him, you won't get the protection. It's a matter of trust. And we know that whenever someone is, a, is in danger, and they want to be saved, they've got to trust whoever it is that's going to be their savior. If they don't trust their savior, then they won't be saved. Verse 6. You know the truth words, but he may rebuke and expose you as a liar. Okay, here's the next declaration. Uh, and this declaration here is the absolute sufficiency of the scriptures. <laughs> The, the scriptures is so sufficient that we don't need to add nothing to it. You know, remember Adam and Eve when God uh, approached Eve in the garden and asked her, you know, what happened when they sinned? What did she do? She added some stuff to what God had said. Okay? He says, God said we must not eat from the tree and we shouldn't even touch it. Did God say that? God said anything about touching the tree? He says, no, do not eat from the tree. He didn't say anything about not touching it, okay? But uh, the Word of God is so sufficient that we don't need to add anything to it. We don't need to add anything to the Word of God to impress anybody or to make them believe what the Scriptures are saying. The Scriptures is quite sufficient enough to do that in and of itself. No one should have the guts to add their opinions or assumptions to what God has already said. And this is why cults are condemned. Cults are condemned by this very same proverb. This is one of those proverbs that condemn the cults. Uh, by giving, we condemn the cults for giving their own writings to, and traditions the same authority as the Bible. You know, some of them do that. 
Okay, whatever they come up with, whatever their, their founders come up with, they give it the same authority and they put it on the same level as the scriptures. And so this is one of those proverbs or those verses in the scripture that condemns uh, what the cults do. Okay, verses 7, 8, and 9. Someone read those verses. Oh God, I gave two favors to you. Let me out there before I die. First, help me never to tell a lie. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And if I am too poor, I might steal and sell God. <laughs> okay, now people, I, I know a lot of people who quote this passage, but you know a lot of people who quote this don't really mean it. You realize that? Is the words, just give me enough to satisfy my needs. A lot of people say that they don't really mean that. But it sounds good. It sounds noble. It sounds holy. Okay, so here we see the only prayer recorded in the book of Proverbs. You read the Proverbs, you find that this is the only prayer recorded in the book of Proverbs. And it's short and to the point. Not no long drawn out prayer. It includes two petitions covering one, the spiritual life, and two, the physical life. Just two. A worthwhile and honest life is what Agar wanted first and foremost, instead of being wasted on nonsense. Okay, a serious man. Okay, he wanted a worthwhile, honest life. What he did not want was the major on the minus. The major on the minus and end up being deceived and deceiving others. He didn't want his life to, to end up making a fool of himself and making a fool of other people. That's what he's saying here. Uh, regarding the physical, he asked for deliverance from extremes of poverty and riches and to just be satisfied with his daily needs being provided. In other words, he was saying, what is used in that model prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ gave when he says, give us this day our daily bread. Remember the first? That's what he's thinking of here. Just, just give me what I need for my daily needs. I'm not greedy. Just give me what I need for the day. I'm going to trust you every single day to give me what I need for that day. That's trust. And then he expresses his reasons for wanting to avoid the double extremes that he mentions here of riches and poverty. Notably he says if he is rich, he might feel so independent that he would deny the Lord and by showing no great need for him. Okay, there are people who have wealth and riches and they figure they don't need God. They get all the money they want and money can buy them whatever they need. So what do they need God for? That's the attitude of some people. And then uh, he mentions he might become bold enough to say, who is Lord? Who is the Lord? In other words, who is he that I should look to him for what I need or want. I mean, they look at all that they've acquired and, and attribute it to their own skill, their own ability, their own self. So they so say, what has God done for me? He says, there's a danger in that. 
Okay, and so he says the danger of poverty is the potential to steal and cover it up by lying under oath, which is what people do today. That's a common practice. And so the application then we should take from what Agar is saying is both having too much money and having too little money can be dangerous. Okay, if you have too much, that could be dangerous. If you have, don't have enough, that could be dangerous. Being poor can, in fact, be harmful to spiritual and physical health. Okay? Being poor can be harmful to physical and spiritual health. On the other hand, being rich is not the answer either. As Jesus pointed out, rich people have trouble getting into the kingdom of heaven. Remember when he said that? In uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 23 and 24. He says, I tell you the truth, it is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. We can also learn, like Paul, how to live if we have little or more. Paul says in Philippians 4.12, he says, I know how to live on almost anything or on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. So our lives, however, are more likely to be most effective if we have neither poverty nor riches. The point is just having sufficient for the day. Now there's nothing wrong, the Bible doesn't condemn having wealth. Because the Bible, the Bible tells us it is God who gives us the ability to obtain wealth. So God don't have a problem with wealth. God has a problem with wealth having us. That's the problem. See, a lot of times people get so much wealth that their wealth takes possession of them and their wealth dictates what they do with their lives and not God. And that's what God has a problem with. So there's nothing wrong with wealth. And so the, 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 the application here then is our lives will be most effective if we, if we neither have poverty nor riches, but sufficient. Unless you allow you to dictate what your riches do, and not what your riches do, how your riches dictate to you. Of course, think about what the kingdom of God would be if they want money. Many tremendous things have been done to advance the kingdom of God with money. So money is not the culprit. Money is neutral. Okay, it's how it is used that's bad. And that's why that's why a lot of people misquote scripture when they say money is the root of all kinds of evil. Is that true? No. Is it scriptural? No. No. What does the Bible say? The love. the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But we have people quoting that out of context all the time. Yeah. Okay, so many people get the wrong concept that money is bad. It's not. Okay, we gotta stop there. Time is gone. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word today. We thank you for the clarity of your word and the understanding that you've given us. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we may embrace it and take it with us during the course of the week, that we may be able to apply it when we find ourselves in those situations because we know we have a wicked enemy who will try to test us and to see if we were really learning anything. And so we pray, Lord, that we may be prepared for our many raises as ugly head. Bless us now as we separate. We pray for the service to follow and all those who will be participating. Get glory for yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.